Loving Father, please speak to us now as we come to the Bible. By your Holy Spirit, help us to know that you are King and help us to come to you, to return to you, to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's important to us that you're happy with your IKEA purchase. If you're not totally satisfied or simply just change your mind, you can return your products within 365 days. That's a pretty serious change of mind policy, wouldn't you say? I mean, gone are the days when you could only exchange something if it was faulty. Now you've got an entire 12 months to decide that that weird thing you bought in a flurry of excitement up in Tempe was actually not really worth it. This is one of the few situations in life where our society says it's good to change your mind. But I think those times are becoming fewer and fewer. I reckon more often than not, our society sees a change of mind as a weakness. After all, if you've come to a conclusion about a matter, then you need to own that. You need to stick to it. You need to sign up for it for life. So if you're for euthanasia or against green energy or whatever these things, you need to be committed for life. And if you change your mind, you're weak and confused, or so they say. But surely a healthy society is one in which it's okay to change your mind. 20 years ago, Ayan Hirsi Ali converted from Islam to atheism. She converted from a strict form of Islam that she followed when she was in Kenya, where she grew up. But when she saw its true colours, she threw it away. And she threw all religion away. But then last month, she published an article in which she claimed that she had converted from atheism to Christianity. She wrote, I discover a little more at church each Sunday, but I have recognised in my own long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. End quote. She embraced militant Islam as a teenager, then converted to atheism in her 30s, and now in her 50s, she is a Christian. Why does she keep changing her mind? What's wrong with her? Well, it's actually something right, isn't it? Because when you're confronted with the truth, it's good to change your mind. Because the truth leads us to change our minds. And sometimes the change we need is, in fact, a change back to where we came from, a return to what we once believed, to the truth we once held. Sometimes we need to return to the Lord. And as we look at the third chapter today of Malachi, we hear God say to his people, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. God called his people back to return to him. But what had they left behind? How had they changed their mind? Well, it's simple. They stopped following God. They stopped believing his word. And so the Lord simply says to him, says to them, return to me, return to me. And friends, I want to ask you today, is that a message you need to hear? 
Do you need to return to the Lord? Or maybe have you never turned to him at all? Tonight might be the night for you to turn to him for the first time. Well, let's, with all of that in mind, hear about the problem that faced God's people 500 years before Jesus walked on earth. So that's about 2,500 years ago. And as we hear that word to them, we today have a word to us. And it begins with chapter 2, verse 17. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. The one who has created the universe has become weary by what they've said. God's people made him weary. God's people made the Lord weary. He's tired of hearing their stupidity. But they ask, verse 17, how have we wearied him? And the answer is this. You have wearied him by saying that all who do evil are good in the Lord's sight and that he's pleased with them. In other words, they're saying God loves evil. He thinks it's great. I mean, it's hard to distort the truth more than that, isn't it? But I think it's something we see all the time. People say, you know, the God I believe in wouldn't stop people following their natural desires. Or the Jesus I know wouldn't send a person to hell if they just chose a different religion to follow. All the time, people worship imaginary versions of God. But that's ultimately a form of idolatry, isn't it? Make the God you want to follow and then follow him. But it does even more damage because it creates a fake that confuses others. It happens all the time on Facebook. People say, don't accept any friend requests from me because someone's made a fake account. It's almost like if you're following God on Facebook, he says, don't follow that other Jesus Christ account because it's a fake. And we see this happen all the time. And some of the fakes are very, very clever. Possibly the most clever is the Jehovah's Witnesses fake. They say Jesus isn't God and that he didn't die on the cross. But I tell you what, when they knock at the door and they give you a brochure, it's like, well, this is Christianity, isn't it? No, it's not. Or even the Roman Catholic Church teaches things about Jesus, saying that he is actually physically present when they have the Mass and that he's being re-sacrificed in a sense. That's a different Jesus. If I was God and people went around misrepresenting me in different places, I would be furious. You know, people say, oh, God can't stop bad things happening. And I'm God like saying, I said, what? I never said that. Or God doesn't care what happens in a person's private life when no one's watching. I say, oh, I'm God. It's like, really? When did I say that? I never said that. That's what the people were doing in Malachi's time. They were saying in particular, oh, God doesn't really care about evil. He actually reckons it's pretty good. It's like, when did God ever say that? But that's not the only thing they said that wearied God. There was another one. Verse 17c says, you have wearied him by asking, where is the God of justice? They basically say, God doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He's not here. He's not there. He's not anywhere. He's deserted us. He doesn't care for the injustices we're experiencing. And they are even more serious accusations against God. You know, if you say that God doesn't care about right or wrong, you're saying basically that he is against justice or that he perverts justice, that he's effectively a crooked judge. Imagine that. 
You've got to be pretty confident about what you believe to say, God, you are crooked. You are unjust. But that's exactly what they said to him. You can see why it wearied him. He's not going to let them sit back and defame him like that. It's like, I've got to get down there and tell them the truth because they keep telling lies about me. If I was God, I don't think I'd have this much patience. But God is going to act. And so we read in chapter 3, verse 1a, he says, Look, I am sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. What's he going to do? with his weariness from them defaming him, telling lies about what he really is like and what he really does, he's going to send someone to get them ready for him. God will respond by sending a messenger. And what will happen after that advance party comes along to get the people ready? The second half of the verse says, The Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly. Where is the God of justice? He is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Where's he going to come? Where's he going to go to? It says, after the messenger gets the ready, people ready, the Lord will come to his temple. Uh, that's where he meets with his people. It back then represented the very presence of God in the land with his people, and he will come. The people were saying, where is the God of justice? And then suddenly, bam, the God of justice will come. And the Lord will come to his temple. But what will it be like when he eventually comes to his temple? Well, the Lord, who is weary of his people creating face, fake profiles of him, the Lord who is weary of people accusing him of accepting evil and sinful behaviour, what will it be like when he comes? Well, verse 2a says, Who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? In other words, what will it be like? Terrifying. Terrifying. Those who have said to God, Where is he? Or he doesn't care about good or evil. They will be terrified because he will come down and sort it out. And people will not be able to survive. It reminds me of what it was like when Moses went up to the holy mountain and he was terrified of seeing the Lord face to face. Terrifying. But when he comes, he comes for a purpose. He comes to purify his people. That's what it says. He comes to purify his people. Have a look at verse 2b. For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes he'll come and he'll burn stuff up to purify it or he'll be like almost acid bleach that's almost like acid that just completely burns off everything that is impure in either situation when that day comes you want to be wearing protective clothing a few months ago I sat for 15 minutes in a shipping container that was 800 degrees up at the ceiling I uh, was training to, with the RFS to learn how to use breathing apparatus and do structure firefighting and all of that. I had a special helmet on, special gloves and boots and clothing. And my helmet got so hot on that day that the fine particles of smoke and everything got on the helmet and melted into the helmet. So my helmet now has all these black speckled spots in it that you can't rub off because they've been melted in. That's how hot it was. 
It gave me a little bit of a taste of what it's like to be in a very hot and intense place. And that's the kind of picture that God is saying that it'll be like when he comes to his temple. Why does it need to be that hot? It's because heat purifies. Let's say you're doing some gardening out the back and you hit a rock, and you pull it out, and you realise, hey, this isn't any, just any normal kind of rock. It's actually a whole gold nugget, you little ripper. Now, you look at it and it's full of dirt and other sort of stuff like that. What do you do? Well, you go with someone you trust and you melt it down to molten gold. And in the process, it burns all the rubbish out and just ends up with this beautiful, purified piece of gold. Now, that's all very nice, unless you happen to be the gold, because it's going to be pretty hot in there and you're not going to be in the same shape when you're finished with it. That's the kind of picture that God has for his people. It says that he will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver, so that they may once again offer acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. He will bring purity. And it'll be painful, but purity will come. The purification will come at a cost. And because of the purification, he'll now accept the offerings of his people. Verse 4, then once more the Lord will accept the offerings brought to him by the people of Judah and Jerusalem as he did in the past. So when the people claimed that God was unjust and uncaring, what did God do? He came to his people and through great pain, God made it possible for them to be reconciled to him. And it was through a sacrifice that was pleasing to him. Now, does all that sort of sound familiar? It sounds like what happened when Jesus came. When he came and through pain died as a sacrifice for his people. That is why this verse of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, is quoted several times in the New Testament to describe the preparation of the coming of Jesus. In fact, the first reading, sorry, the third reading we had today before from Mark chapter 1, the second verse is Malachi 3, 1. Look, I am sending my messenger. There's this anticipation right there that the messenger's coming and the Lord is coming too. It's wonderful because we see here a whole new perspective on what was happening when Jesus came. And it's all because of this work that was written 500 years before Jesus came. But another time it's quoted in the New Testament is by Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus said, John the Baptist is the man to whom the scriptures refer when they say, here it is, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way before you. You see, we know exactly who the messenger is because Jesus tells us. He says the messenger of Malachi is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the Lord's messenger. He is the one who has come to prepare the way for the Lord. And so as Jesus talks about John the Baptist saying he's preparing the way for the Lord, what is he saying about himself? He's saying that he is the Lord, the Lord coming to his temple, the Lord to bring the fire that refines. You see, if you hear a Christian say, oh, the Old Testament, it doesn't really help us anymore. It's just all old and outdated. It's like, when was the last time you actually read the Old Testament? 
Because I'm telling you, as I'm reading Malachi 3, I'm seeing all this extra colour and detail in the New Testament. For we see exactly what Jesus had in mind when he came and what others who knew the prophecy of Malachi also had in mind that when Jesus came. But with that in mind, we go back to Malachi and read about what would happen when the Lord came after the messenger had prepared them. Verse 5, it says, At that time I will put you on trial. I am eager to witness against all sorcerers and adulterers and liars. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. See, if that was describing what will happen when Jesus comes, I think it gives a new perspective on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would have had this in mind as he gave the sermon. And certainly as Jesus was speaking, he was not going to let them get away with evil because he's God. And God won't let them get away with evil like he said he wouldn't hear. And we see this in the preaching of Jesus against those who cheated widows like the teachers of the law, Mark 12. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property, Jesus says, and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. That's what Jesus says. Luke 11, he says, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? You are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Jesus came and he was angry, and rightly so, because he was angry at the very same people that God was angry at as he spoke to Malachi. And we're going to hear a bit more about that in a moment. But now we hear a bit more about what the mission is going to be like. And we read something that I'm not sure if it's exactly what we would have expected to read. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, a great little tip is almost cover up the next verse and think, what would I say next? What would I expect God to say next? And then see if it matches up. If it does, you think, oh, that's cool. If it doesn't, you think, ah, oh, that's a bit odd. What does that tell me about me? What does that tell me about God? Here's what he says next. He says, I am the Lord and I do not change. Is that what you would have expected God to have said there? Why would he say that he doesn't change? What does it matter? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. And that is because we have justice because the Lord doesn't change. See, if God changed his mind all the time about what was right or was wrong, the entire universe would be in a complete mess. Imagine you turn up to court and, and, and maybe there's a person had, had a drink driving offence and you turn up and say, what's the judge going to say? Well, this week he says, oh, that's great. I hope you had a great party. And then the week before he says, I'm sending you to prison. Anybody who even flip-flops? If God was changing like that, you'd say, where is the justice? But God says, I do not change. There is justice. But there's another reason why. It's because it means he shows mercy. 6b, that is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. See, God doesn't change his promises. He said to, the descendant, he said, said to Jacob's descendants that he would be their God and he'd be their people and he'd bless them and make their name great. He doesn't change, which means he doesn't change his promises. It's not like he gets to the point and think, 
far out. These guys are a disaster. I'm taking my bat and ball and going home. I'm giving up on these promises. I'm breaking them. I'm going to try and get some new people. Much better than this lot. He doesn't do that. He does not change. And that's why they're not already destroyed. Because if he was the kind of God who changed his mind, they would have been absolute cactus centuries before. But he didn't. And so we see in this next verse, verse 7, ever since the days of your ancestors, you've scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. And then he says what I quoted before, now return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of heaven's army. They keep rejecting God over and over again, but nonetheless, the Lord calls them to return to him. Change your minds, change your hearts, repent of your sins and return to me, he says. And then if they do that, the Lord will return to them. He's still faithful to them, even if they don't return to him. But they can't expect his favour, his blessing, when they've rejected him like that. That's why their sacrifices and worship weren't being accepted. You know, they're, they're busily you know, doing all their temple stuff and they're thinking, why is this not working? Why is this not working? Well, you can see why it's not working. But the Lord says, come back to me and your blessings will come back as well. Now, we've got to realise this was written 500 years before Jesus. It was in the Old Testament. Lots of things changed between the Old Testament and the New but this message is still true to us today. The same God who never changes is the same God who still keeps his promises. But even with all of this, the people of God still didn't admit their fault. They still dug their heels in. And they say, how can we return when we've never gone away? Now, that's kind of true. They're still turning up to do their temple stuff. And they're, they're putting on the fancy gear and they're doing all of the religious stuff. And in a sense, yeah, they are there. And so they can say, well, we've never gone away, Lord. What's the problem? But the problem is, verse 8, it says, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But they ask, what do you mean? When did we ever treat you, cheat you, God? And God says, you have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings due to me. They claim to be faithful to God, but they're cheating him. And they're trying to deceive God by giving too little. So back then in the Old Testament, they were supposed to give 10% of their earnings to God. It was a deal, right? 10% to God, you keep 90%. It's simple. And they would bring that to the temple, to what was called a tithe and an offering. 10%, pretty simple. But they weren't. They weren't actually giving that. And they thought that God wouldn't notice. But turns out he did. And so God says to them, verse 9, You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. Cheating God. The gall of it to say, well, we're supposed to give 10%. We'll just give 5 And off they go. And so God says to them, if you're really devoted to me, give me what I'm owed. They needed to give him what he's entitled to. So do we take that verse and apply it directly to us today? Well, no, because things have changed. You see, back in the Old Testament, they had an obligation to give 10% to God. And they knew when they were doing the right thing and they knew when they weren't doing the right thing. 
But that is not the case for us today. It's all just now about being generous to God because he's been generous to us and there's not a number put on it. But for them, there was. And if they did, back then, before Jesus, they were promised a special blessing at that time. We read in verses 10 to 12, God said, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they're ripe says the Lord of heaven's armies, and then all the nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. It's an awesome promise. They've just got to do what God says they've got to do. Do what he expects of them, the 10%. They can keep the 90% and get a wonderful blessing from God. Their crops would go crazy. They'd be guarded from insects and be super productive, quite simply. Back then, if they trusted in God, he'd protect their crops. And everyone would say, wow, what is it about those Israelites? You know, one, no one's actually invest, invec, in, in, um, uh, uh, invented pesticide just yet. And yet here they are, and everything's like there's no pests. How is this working? This is extraordinary. They must be so blessed. And God's kind of given this divine pesticide. It's like, this is really cool. Organically, probably, as well. This is what happens to them. If they trusted in God, he'd protect their crops. But we live in a different time. See, in the New Testament, our blessings are not as visible and tangible. We look forward to the new creation when we will experience the fullness of spiritual blessings and not the physical blessings of wealth and abundance of possessions. And I've got to say there are preachers around today who love preaching on this passage. Because it's a terrific passage that if you twist it enough, you can actually say, if you give more money to the Christian church, then you will have more blessings from God right now. And they, they thump the pulpits and they say, well, do you want to have the windows of heaven open up and pour out blessings on you? Uh, let's send around the plates again and give some more money and you'll experience these blessings. Now, that's bad because it distorts God's word. But it's even worse because it leads people to treat God like he's some sort of pyramid scheme. Today, we give to God in response to his grace. Willingly. Not out of obligation. He's given us everything and we say, well, what can we give to you, Lord? And it's not like we're getting our calculators out. But back then, they knew what they had to give and they weren't. And everything was going pear-shaped. They didn't feel God's love. They didn't feel God's blessing. And, well, it's come to this, verse 13. The Lord says, You have said terrible things about me, says the Lord. And they say, What do you mean, Lord? What have we said against you? The Lord says, You have said... What's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or by trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies that we're sorry for our sins? 
to the people at the time of Malachi basically said, it's not worth following God. It's a waste of time. They saw no value in serving God, no return on their investment. They don't gain anything. They don't feel any love from him. And in the end, they say, we're just not getting enough out of going to be with God. No benefit at all. Is that possibly something that you might have thought at some stage? Maybe it's not something that you might put words to, but maybe just in those brief moments you think, why do I do this? What's the purpose of being a follower of Jesus? And I wonder if it's because we think of God like he's Santa Claus. We know when we've been bad or good, and we've been good for goodness sake, but he didn't bring any presents. And in the process, he's knocked down the chimney and set fire to the Christmas tree. You're thinking, what kind of God is he? You might be going through a hard time in your life and you think, what good is it praying? You wonder why you keep coming to church? You wonder why you keep calling yourself a Christian? Because life sucks. Financial problems, relationship problems, health problems. And you're thinking, Lord, hang on. Why do I bother? What's the purpose in serving you? Maybe you've come a little bit like the people of Malachi who say in this very last verse of today's passage, from now on we will call the arrogant blessed. For those who do evil get rich and those who dare God to punish them suffer no harm. The bad guys are winning. The atheists are having a terrific life. And we're the crazies coming to church and going through suffering and difficulties so they gave up on God and I wonder if that might be you you may not say it but it might just sometimes be that niggling thought you have why do I bother and maybe it's because you feel like you're entitled to more Entitled to a better life if you follow Jesus. And when you're going through a hard time, you think, well, that just proves that following Jesus wasn't really worth it at all. Because if, I, if it really was worth something good, then why is life so horrible right now? Why don't I just walk away from it or try something else? But if you think that, even just a little tiny bit, then it shows that you misunderstand what Jesus is really like. You think of Jesus like he's Santa, that you're just in it for the presence. But what you're really needing is his presence. If that's what you think, I want you to change your mind and return to the Lord Stop thinking of Jesus as a blessings vending machine. You do the good stuff and you press L7 and out comes a blessing. And when I put my money in and the money 
gets stuck and nothing comes out, I think this is stupid and you whack it and you walk away. I want you to change your mind about what Jesus is really like. And I want you to change your mind to see life like the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Romans in chapter 8. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or danger or threatened in death? Does it mean he no longer loves us? Because as the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Does it mean he really no longer loves us? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us.